Hello, I'm Derek Walker and I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. This is part two in a series where we're asking the question, can women preach, teach, be in leadership? Last time we looked at the foundations for this subject in Genesis chapter 1 to 3. And uh, for instance, in Genesis 1, we saw the essential equality of men and women because they're both made in the image of God and they've both been given dominion over the earth. And, and this fundamental equality is also preserved in the fall because all men and women have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're, they're both equally under the curse that came upon mankind. And also we are equal in, our, in the redemption through Christ is for men and women. Uh, Galatians 3.26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you that were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so both men and women are equally saved, have an equal share of the inheritance of God. They're equally precious to God, equally the objects of his love and salvation. The, author the issue we're looking at is essentially about authority. What authority in the church, in society, are women allowed to have? And so it's important to realize that Genesis 1 gives us and defines the first divine institution, the which means that a God-given area of delegated authority. And I call that free will. We are all given authority and responsibility over our own lives. We will all personally give an account to God for them. And, and then we saw in Genesis 2 that there were distinctive differences in how God created the first man and the first woman. He purposely formed them for each other to be joined together in the first marriage. And, and there were differences. Adam was formed first. Eve was brought out of Adam and brought to his side and then they were married. It was a union of two equals, male and female, who corresponded to each other. But by making them in a certain order, God instituted an order of authority in marriage. Uh, and Adam was given the responsibility, the primary one, of providing loving leadership not dominating leadership, in their shared life together. Now the key point is that Genesis 2 is obviously about marriage, the second divine institution. The passage ends and concludes with that statement that a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. You know, and it says they were both man and wife and unashamed. So it reveals an order an authority in marriage, but it must respect the first institution of free will. Uh, but Genesis 2 doesn't even come close to teaching that men automatically have authority over all women uh, uh, and that a woman can never be in authority. It's talking about a specific relationship between a, a, a particular man and a particular woman in marriage. And the context makes it clear that the male headship there is limited to marriage. Well, authority, you see, is heavy stuff. It's essential that we understand the areas of authority in f with family and children, government, the workplace, the church, because if authority is overextended, it can be abusive. 
The two dangers of authority is that it's passive, it's underused, or that it's overused and becomes abusive. And so a husband's authority in marriage does not give him the right to dominate his wife's free will. Uh, but it's to cause her to be all that she's meant to be. A policeman has the authority to enforce the law, but not to interfere in your personal life. And so if Genesis 2 entrusts the leadership of the marriage to a man, this does not grant men authority over all women. That would be an abuse. Then we saw Genesis chapter 3 showed the disruption of God's perfect order caused by the fall. And God then described the consequences of man's sin, which included a, a, a corruption of the relationships between man and woman. Genesis 3.16, it says to the woman, he said, your desire to control will be to control your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, though she might desire to control the husband, yet on the whole he will tend to win, you know, um, use his greater strength to rule over her. And this is a prophecy that in the battle of the sexes, generally the woman would come off worse, and male domination would become the norm. And of course, history has borne that out. Instead of him providing loving leadership, he will tend to rule her, treat her as his subject. Uh, that has happened a lot, but that wasn't God's intention. It was the result of sin. It's life under the curse. But when the Messiah comes, he will reverse the curse, praise God, and redeem this imbalance and establish the true equality between male and female in redeemed humanity. And that should be demonstrated in the church. That's what Galatians 3.28 says. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And I ask you this, if the church excludes women from all positions of authority and from all possibility of teaching and preaching, all public positions, how can it possibly demonstrate this truth that in Christ there is no difference between male and female? You see, Genesis 3.16 predicts that male authority will overreach its bounds and create a male domination that will deny women their freedom. And one aspect of this fallen male domination is that man claims that the authority that God gave him for marriage is to be extended to all other areas, saying that only men can be an authority in society, in the church, and a woman's forbidden to have authority over a man. What if the police said that, you know, they're entrusted with authority, so it, they will take charge in every situation? That would be abusive. Yes, the husband's the loving head of, the, of his wife, but the man is not the head of woman generally. Are men over all women? That is absurd if you really think about it. Now, the fact that in the Old Testament society that was often male-dominated doesn't mean that was God's will. Any more than the other consequences of the curse was God's will, but that's what happened. And, but all, even in the Old Testament patriarchal society, there would have been many obstacles to women reaching some kind of public ministry. God still was able to raise up a number of women into leadership and uh, public ministry. If God excluded women from this kind of position by a law of the created order in Genesis, then there should be no exceptions at all. And these women were presumably in rebellion against God. But 
That's obviously not so. Let's have a look at some of them. Um, first of all, Deborah was both a judge and a prophetess. She was a leader, a judge. She was the leader of Israel in her time. Judges 4, 4 and 5 says that Deborah was a prophetess and she was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under a palm tree and they would come to her for judgment. Now a prophet is a position of significant authority in the kingdom of God and it involves being a preacher among other things. So even in the Old Testament, women could preach if they were called and anointed by God. And uh, she was a judge as well. And there's no doubt that in the time of judges, that was a position of governmental authority. She was the main ruler in the land, in fact. Now, there was also a military general called Barak, but he got his instructions from her, and actually he was w so weak that he needed her to come and help him fight the battle. Well, he lost the main glory as a result, but she was no doubt anointed to lead and to preach. Miriam also was a prophetess and a worship leader and was one of the top th in the top three leadership of Israel, even above the heads of the various tribes. Exodus 15.20 says, Miriam the prophetess, sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in the hand and all the women went out after her in the dance and the timbrels. And so she was a worship leader, she was a prophetess. Micah 6.4 tells us that she was also on the leadership team. He, God says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The NIV says, I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. She was one of the top leaders of Israel. What about Esther, who was raised up to be the queen, the second in command of the Persian superpower of the time? There were other prophetesses. The Talmud itself acknowledges Seven prophetesses in all. Isaiah called his wife a prophetess. Anna the prophetess in Luke 2.36 was present uh, at the birth of Jesus. She was ministering publicly in the temple and uh, she, she actually prophesied over Jesus. It says that she spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She publicly proclaimed that this baby Jesus was the Messiah. She had a public speaking ministry. Also, the prophetess Huldah was actually the main spiritual authority in the time of King Josiah, and the leaders of Israel would seek her out in 2 Kings 22. In fact, 886 verses of scripture came through the lips of women, prophetesses and, and others. This proves that even in a male-dominated world before Christ came, God did not exclude women from public speaking or leadership. He ra or rather, he raised them up. How much more? Now that Christ has come to reverse the curse and restore the relationships between men and women to the way they should be before the fall, women should be free to preach and lead if they're called and gifted to do that. Now, we need to come to a crucial New Testament passage that is based on Genesis 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 15. And this is often used to exclude women from any place of authority in the church, any ability to teach in the church. Let's have a look at this passage. Let's see what it really says. Verse 8. I desire therefore that the men, 
the men of the church, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also the women, the women of the church, should pray, lifting up holy hands, adorning themselves in modest apparel with proprietary and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. In other words, he's saying the women should pay the most attention to adorning themselves uh, with good works. That's the most important adornment of all. It's clear that in these verses, Paul's talking to generally to the women, women and the men of the church. But I want you to notice something when we come to the next verse. And from verse 11 to 15, he signals a change of subject. Because instead of addressing men and women in the plural, he switches to speaking to a man and a woman in the singular. And this is a specific man and a specific woman. And as we'll see from the context of Adam and Eve, he's talking about the husband and the wife relationship. So you've got to know what divine institution he's talking to. Is it life in the church or is it the marriage relationship? Well now, he moves in 1 Timothy 2.11, he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. It's very interesting verses there. But the key thing to understand is that the word for man in Greek is the same as the word for husband. The word for woman is the same for wife. So you have to discern how to translate it best. And it's clear that he's moved from church life to discussing the marriage relationship. He talks about Adam and Eve and childbearing. And he signaled this switch to husband and wife by moving from the plural to the singular, you see. So he's not talking about church ministry, he's talking about the marriage relationship. He's taking a side journey to talk about marriage. And he's shown that, as I say, by changing to woman, or which should be translated wife. And so it's crucial to know, you see, whether he's talking about marriage or the church. If he intended to continue to talk about church life, he would have stayed to talk about women in the plural, and men in the plural then it would be, I would have to admit, it would be clear he was forbidding women to teach in the church. But let's see what he really says. Verse 11 actually should be translated. Let a wife learn in silence. It's not actually silence. It means quietness, a gentle, quiet spirit, with all submission. That's, in other words, she should maintain her submission to her husband. Let's talk about the husband and wife. Now, this verse does sound a bit strange to the modern ear. But it was actually very liberating for women in the first century. You see, Jewish culture at that time discouraged women from any kind of study or education, especially study of the word, going to synagogue. It was felt they were unworthy and unfitted for such a spiritual occupation. Their place was just at home. And Paul here is coming against this kind of domination of women in, in marriage by saying, really saying to the husbands, let her learn the word. Let her do it. He, he's coming against the husband that would stop her. Uh, but just so she doesn't misunderstand this new kind of liberation in Christ, meaning that she can throw off 
her husband's headship in marriage, he reminds her that she should maintain her submission in that marriage relationship. But he is restoring her free will from that male domination. Then verse 12, which of course is the key verse, should read like this, I do not permit a wife to teach or have authority over, dominate her husband, but to be in silence. Again, it's talking about quietness, a quiet spirit, a gentle spirit. In this key verse, you see, all that Paul is doing is upholding God's order in marriage from Genesis chapter 2. Okay, because in case the women who have been set free in Christ mistake their freedom as an excuse to reject their husband's headship, he is making it clear that yes, we are free, we're equal in Christ, but he is saying she is not to usurp her husband's authority. That's all it's saying, speaking to marriage. Um, a wife, now it says in particular, he doesn't allow her, the, her to teach her husband. Now that sounds a bit strict, doesn't it? Obviously a wife can teach her husband things. We're always teaching one another, I hope. But he uses the continuous, uh, t present continuous for teach, which means she's not to be continually teaching him. Or better, she's not to put herself over him as, her t as his teacher. She's not to hold that authoritative teaching position over him because that would undermine God's created order in marriage. So Paul is coming against the Jewish culture of the time. He's saying women should learn the word of God. But he warns the wives that are spiritually ahead of their husband not to use that as an excuse to take over the leadership of the marriage. They are to stay submissive in that. But it's a submission to a specific man, singular. The wife is not to have authority over the man, the husband. He, she is not under submission to all men. In other words, this passage upholds male authority in marriage, but it does not speak to the issue of authority in the church. It does not forbid women to teach or lead in the church. It makes no such restrictions. She is told not to take authority or to dominate or usurp authority over her husband, but to stay in a gentle, quiet, feminine spirit. This is speaking about marriage, but not denying women leadership in the church. But if she is a leader in the church, she should also stay submitted in her marriage. And then Paul defends his position from Genesis in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, the wife, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be, the wife, will be saved in childbearing. Let's have a look at Paul's argument here. He's saying, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. First of all, he goes to Genesis 2, the created order. He felt that this, this Genesis passage established the male superiority, the male, sorry, the male authority spoken of in verse 12. He was appealing to Genesis 2 for his proof. Now, Genesis 2 is a detailed description of how God brought about the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And so it's entirely reasonable to deduce from Genesis 2 that there is an order and authority within marriage. But it's impossible from Genesis 2 to deduce that men should always be in authority over women. You, you can't find that in the passage. And, and that women should be excluded from all positions. 
Therefore, Paul could not possibly be appealing to Genesis 2 to establish a total male authority. You see, this is further proof that Timothy 2, verse 11 to 15, is speaking about marriage. Because that's the way Paul is building his own. It only makes sense if he's speaking about marriage, Adam and Eve. And he was building that to support his point that the wife should not usurp her husband. It is not speaking about church life. The whole thing is not consistent. In fact, the church did not even exist in Genesis 2. So if you say 1 Timothy 2 forbids women to be, have any kind of leadership over men in the church, based on the created order of Genesis 2, then if you're going to be consistent, if you're going to base it on the, the created order, uh, and you're saying it's male authority generally, you would also have to forbid all Christian women from taking any jobs in the workplace with any kind of authority in society. You see, it's Timothy 2 is based on Genesis 2, and it, it's the created order. And if it applies to all women in all circumstances, there would be no grounds to kind of say, well, this only applies to the church. You'd have to apply it to the workplace too. That means all Christian women would have to lay down their positions in, in, in society and at the workplace. But if Genesis 2 does apply to marriage, and it does, then 1 Timothy 2 also, as it is arguing from Genesis 2, must also be speaking about marriage. It's clear, really. Then he says Adam was not deceived, but the wife, or the woman being deceived, fell into transgression. Paul now points to the events of Genesis 3, the fall. And some interpret this as meaning that women should not teach because they're more open to deception, you see, because Eve was deceived. However, this view has largely been discredited. Uh, for a start, the Bible puts more blame on Adam because he willfully sinned. Shouldn't this disqualify men from teaching because they're more likely to deliberately sin than, than women? Men are perhaps more prone to pride. Doesn't that mean they're more prone to deception? And also in history, most false doctrine and deception has actually come through men. So history doesn't bear that out either. So women, um, if women are more prone to deception than men, then why are the elder women told to teach the younger women in Titus chapter 2? If deception makes them unfit to teach, uh, you know, and if women are more easily deceived, they shouldn't be able to allow to teach women either, neither men nor women. In fact, if women are more easily deceived, then it's more important they have a good and clear teacher, um, a ma in that way of thinking, a man to teach them. They should, certainly shouldn't have a woman teacher. So th in other words, that whole line of thinking is, is clearly uh, illogical. What is Paul saying here? Well, having upholded God's order in marriage, he points out the danger now of violating this order, the consequences. Now in this, the blame is shared between Adam and Eve. On the one hand, Eve acted independently from her husband, as it were, didn't check with him, and she was deceived and fell into sin. But Adam also failed in his responsibility as the head, to lead, to protect her. He was passive in his authority, and he followed her lead into sin. And so Paul is really saying, the wisdom of upholding God's order. Because when God's order was violated, that's when trouble happened. Well, Paul concludes, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. 
This is speaking about redemption through, or from the curse through Christ. Because a big part of the curse was women having more pain in childbirth and danger in childbirth. But now in Christ there's this promise because Christ has come. He's reversed the curse. There's a promise of, of protection in childbirth. And so he's putting a balance on what he said. He said, yes, men are still in authority, but the curse has been broken. And now it should be back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. And if men and women relate that way, God's blessing comes on their union and blessing on their childbirth. And then halfway through verse 15, it switches from singular back to plural. He says, if they, the women, continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. He's gone back to the women. By the rules of grammar, that they must refer back to the previous matching third person plural noun, which is the women of the church in verse 9 and 10. So now we can look at the passage as a whole. Verse 8, it says, I desire the men to pray everywhere. And then he says, likewise, the women adorning themselves. And he says, adorning themselves with good works. Then he goes on a side journey, and then he completes the, 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 the passage by saying... The, to the women of the church, they are to adorn themselves with good works. How? If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. In other words, he's clarifying how the women should go about adorning themselves with good works. They're to do it by continuing in the fruit of the Spirit, in faith, love, holiness, self-control. Their adorning of beauty is not just an outward show of good works, but it is an outward expression of the life and beauty of Christ within them. Their works must flow out of the inner man. They are to cultivate their inner life and beauty and show it forth by their good works. So his general word to the women in the church is essentially women are not to make their first priority, their adorning of clothes, but adorning themselves with good works, which is to be done by continuing in a spirit of faith and love and holiness. His specific word to wives and husbands is simply agreeing with the rest of the Bible. It's talking about being submitted in marriage. So in conclusion, 1 Timothy 2.12 forbids a wife to take authority over her husband, but it does not forbid her having a position of authority in the church or a society. That means the queen doesn't have to abdicate. Neither does it forbid a woman teaching or preaching in church or having public speaking engagements in society. The Apostle Paul has been misunderstood and much maligned. <laughs>